Hello and welcome to Glasgow Subway Journeys from SPT. My name's Fat and over the next few episodes, I'll be discovering more about Glasgow's subway, its rich history, how it operates today and the exciting future ahead as it undergoes a major £288 million modernisation programme. To find out more about the history of the world's third oldest underground railway, where better to start than at Glasgow's Riverside Museum? So this is all very exciting. I'm walking down one of the most recognisable cobbled streets in Glasgow with the lovely John Messner. Now, talk to me about where we are, because this is not a real street, is it? Uh, no, Fat. Uh, this is our recreated 1890s-1930s street, a very popular part of the museum. We had one in the old transport museum. We call it Main Street, but it doesn't represent any exact street in Glasgow. It's not Argyle Street or Dumbarton Street. This is a an idea of what Glasgow streets looked like in the late 19th and early 20th century with a pub, with a cobbler's shop, an Italian ice cream cafe, but also a Glasgow subway station. Now, the one that we're looking at here doesn't look like the ones that we would see today. I mean, it, it seems very... Very low-key. We didn't put that in because we didn't have enough space. This is what the sub- most of the subway stations looked like when they opened in 1896. They were built into tenement buildings. They were built in existing structures. They didn't have kind of grandiose entrance buildings like you might find in Paris. They were very much part of the architecture of the city at the time. And you'd just be walking down the street and suddenly you see kind of a subway sign and you couldn't get sandwiches there. You could actually make your way around the city. I'm disappointed to hear that, but also getting around the city is not a bad thing. So is this the original logo? Um, it's, it's based on some original um, d- drawings and descriptions of it. So the original logo um, was from a company called the Glasgow and District Subway Company, a private company that ran the, the system and it had a very kind of Victorian look. Right, now let's make our way into the, the replica of an old subway station. Is this meant to replicate any particular station in Glasgow? This is supposed to look like most of the stations did when they first opened in 1896. Uh, visitors will come in and they'll see a wooden floor, a kind of big um, glass dome lighting in the roof, uh, ceramic tiles. Uh, it, we have a, a white ceiling, but most of the stations were glazed, so kind of windows up into the sky because the Glasgow subway was and is not a very deep system. The tunnels are not very deep underground. And ahead of us is... The beauty that is the old Glasgow carriage. Uh, talk to me about what we're looking at right now, because it doesn't look like the ones we've, we see today. However, it is almost exactly the same shape. The same shape, kind of same kind of um, dimensions. This is number 39T, which is a trailer car, originally um, ran on the Glasgow subway uh, from the late 1890s all the way up to 1977. This carriage was purchased as a trailer car, which meant that it followed on from the carriage that kind of led the, the train when the, the subway company needed more carriages because they, they were so popular, they needed more seats. And this carriage itself was used all the way up until 1977. If visitors come into the museum, um, it didn't look like this when it finished its career. It had been extended, it had been electrified as part of the system in 1930s. But when the museums got this carriage, uh, kindly donated to us in the, after it was taken off the, the, the rails in 1977, we decided to restore it to look like it originally did back in the late 1890s. Well, it looks lovely. Would it have smelt like this? Um, or would it have been very smoky and hard it, to breathe it, down here? It wouldn't have been smoky. One of, one of the, the selling points of the Glasgow subway was it was clean 
and there was fresh air underneath the, 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 the city. Up on the roads, you had coal smoke, you had lots of smoke from fires, you had lots of horse manure, you had the bustle of the city streets. Were underneath the city streets, these trains moved around. They weren't powered by a steam engine. They were powered by continuously moving cable, which meant that they were quite quiet. There was no pollution down there, no smoke, no smog, anything like that down there. And they had electric lighting, so though you were underground, you were still uh, nice and warm bathed in a, an electric lamp. So no horse manure? No horse manure Counts me in! No, no. Now, shall we check it out inside? Yep, let's go in. Right, I'll follow you in. Oh, wow. There's a lot of wood in here, John. <laughs> yes, uh, it is of its time. It is a, a Victorian railway carriage. Um, with wooden seats, I mean, you wouldn't be on it for very long. So you're not on a, a train from London to Glasgow. You're only on for maybe a half hour at most. So you might think it's not that comfortable. But it is, it is a Victorian uh, bit of public transport. I mean, trams, carriages, omnibuses all had a very similar kind of aesthetic, if you want to put it that way. So when it opened in 1896, although it was a subway and only the third in the world, it still looked very much like public transport of its time. And there's no smoking signs, uh, no spitting signs. I always find that very important. But what about the no vaping? I don't see any of those. <laughs> well, no smoking. You're underground. You're in a wooden carriage, as you just pointed out. You don't want any kind of fire. No spitting. That ha has also very contemporary use because, you know, cholera and other diseases being transferred through, through your spit, through bodily fluids. So you see those signs all on trams and buses and subways of the time. And with the, our, our COVID pandemic in the past few years, it's once again in, in the forefront of people's minds. So usually what happens when I'm on the Glasgow subway, I will sit across from someone and try and avoid eye contact at all times, just to avoid awkwardness and look at the adverts instead. But here we've got the microphones and everything. John, really, really nice to chat to you today. Tell me, who, who is it you are and what is, it, what is it you do here at the Transport Museum? Well, I have the honor of being one of the curators here at Glasgow Museums. And specifically, I look after the railway collection, uh, the subway, tram, and bus side of things. So all the displays you see at this museum, the Riverside, but also displays at, at Kelvin Grove or other Glasgow museums, as well as a lot of the items that are in store. So a lot of our items are not on display. And I am able to uh, work with the public and work with groups like SPT to create new displays at the museums, but also to help people when they have questions about our collection, when they have the questions about their grannies or their, or, or their grandfathers who worked on the trams or worked on the subway and try to help them out, maybe do some family history. And also um, up to working with academics and researchers who are looking at the history of subways or history of design of transport, as we just said. Now, there's always loads of rumors around uh, about the Glasgow subway. It's the oldest in Europe. It's, no, it's the oldest in the world. No, it's the third oldest in Europe. No, it's the, so tell me about this. Well, I, I don't want to take away any kind of Glasgow... Um, kind of rumors or, or mythology, but no, it isn't the oldest. Uh, it's the third oldest in the world. London has the distinction of being the oldest. It actually opened the first of what we call the undergrounds in 1863. So Glasgow didn't open until about 30 years later. And we became the third because in the summer of 1896, Budapest decided to open an underground railway to take visitors out to a kind of a big national exhibition they were having there at the time. And then Glasgow's opened up a bit later in the year, in December of 1896. So the third oldest in the world, but still, that's quite an achievement. And why does Glasgow have a subway? Well, Glasgow in the late 19th century was a big and growing city. It was an industrial city. Lots of people needed to move around. 
Unfortunately, the public transport at the time was limited to horse-drawn um, carriages or horse-drawn trams. So it was thought that to better be able to kind of maximize the, 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 the getting people around the city, new ways of transport needed to be done. So the trams were introduced in the 1870s, but that was still clogging up the roads. A underground railway would get people around the city uh, without adding any more traffic to the roads. So in the early 1890s, an act of parliament was signed that would create a subway in Glasgow, a circular route, uh, the same route we actually have today, a circular route that would move workers around from shipyards to their homes, from school children from their homes to schools, people arriving at St. Enoch Station um, from, from London uh, or, or other parts of the south uh, to around the city, as well as people going to, to football matches and other sporting events. So it was seen as a very modern way to get people around a, a bustling, growing metropolis. See, that sounds like a very obvious reason as to why you would build it. But then I've got loads of really good ideas about things that could get, that could kind of make Glasgow better today, and they never get done. So how come this got actually ended up getting built, and how long did it take? Well, it was a private enterprise. Maybe that had something to do with it. But it was a private enterprise that was uh, originally approved in 1890 and started work in 1891. And it took them five years to complete the work around the city because two full tunnels had to be dug. So the inner and outer circle, the same inner and outer circle we have today, were both dug about six and a half miles uh, in the circle around town. And that was done primarily through what we call cut and cover. So you um, open up a road or open up a field, you put the tunnel underneath it, and then you cover it back over. And that made a lot of sense because if you already had existing roads, and there were quite a few around Glasgow that matched the route, like Scotland Street, the tunnel runs exactly under Scotland Street, then you would have to disrupt the traffic, but you wouldn't have to worry about disrupting any buildings above it. And one thing about the Glasgow subway is it's not a deep subway. It's not like a London or like a Moscow, which is hundreds of, of meters under the ground. It is just under the surface. And in fact, many of the, the, the stations originally had glazed roofs. So they were underground, but you could still see out into the sky. So you couldn't easily dig underneath um, existing buildings. So existing tenement buildings or, or uh, office buildings in the city center. So the cut and cover was a cheap and easy way of doing it. it, just meant it wasn't very deep. And also most of the stations built at the time were not purpose-built. They weren't like the St. Enoch when you see even today, which was kind of a baronial-style castle look. These were mostly built into existing buildings, even into the, the ground floor and the basement of tenement buildings with the stations. Quite kind of unobtrusive in a way. And, and today it wouldn't be seen very positive because you, you don't have a good marketing uh, or, or good visual kind of look to find out where they were in the streets. So it took them five years, and that included uh, four tunnels underneath the Clyde, which was also a concern um, from the Admiralty. The Admiralty, who were against any kind of bridges or crossings over the Clyde that would have any kind of effect on shipbuilding, uh, especially warship building. But that, by the 1890s, wasn't an issue. So the five years, it took up until December of 1896 when the subway opened. That must have cost a lot to build. Yes. The original act uh, allowed for 7,500 100-pound shares, so 750,000 pounds in 1890. Um, and then in 1894, another 500,000 pounds were allowed through another act of parliament. And these were all, once again, it was a private company. So you're looking at about 1.3 million pounds in the 1890s. It's always hard to match that up to modern, modern money. 
but you're looking at at least anywhere from 100 million to a billion pounds, depending on how you calculate that. So it was a big expense. It was one of probably the largest kind of civil engineering projects in, in Scotland at the time and all uh, uh, privately financed. Uh, and most of those through only about a handful of, of, of shareholders who were some of the great and good of the city in terms of industrialists who obviously were buying in, who wanted to get a profit mind, but were buying into this idea of making Glasgow a better city through its transport, which would allow for better access to the shipyards. Were people really excited about this or were they all moaning about all the, the roadworks and all that kind of stuff? Well, I'm sure there was the usual uh, moaning about roadworks because it, it would have opened up, when you do a cut and cover, you don't open up a whole street. You open up a section of the street, you build that part of the tunnel, you cover that up, you dig another hole and go on and go on and go on. And for someone who's only recently had Virgin Media up and down my street in my town doing contraflows continually over the past few months, um, you could see the kind of frustration that might happen. And over a five-year period, not all of it was cut and cover, I should say, um, but there, there must have been some kind of bemoaning of that. And even at the time, there was also new tramways being put in and other kind of underground mainline railways that were being put around the city. So it must have been kind of a big, big disruption to the city center. But what it led to was an opening of a system that reduced traffic from the streets. So hopefully that was one of the, the kind of the reasons that the company and the council or the corporation at the time would give to um, shop owners or commuters of what there were at the time for their complaints. So short-term pain, long-term gain. Yes. Ultimately, um, kind of. That's the usual thing that they say, yeah. <laughs> when did it open in the end? It opened on December 14th in 1896. Did it open with kind of huge ceremony? I imagine all the local influencers and food bloggers were there. <laughs> yeah, they had pop-up shops and food trucks, all the usual things. Um, no, there was, there, was a, there was a massive queue outside St. Enoch Station. You have to remember, this was the third subway in the world and most people in glasgow i would assume hadn't been to london and hadn't been to budapest for this exhibition in 1896 so it would have been a, a novelty and suddenly a new way for people to get around the city so there was a huge queue outside of, of saint enoch station early in the morning and i'm not sure if the company anticipated that because originally the idea was there was just a one penny ticket to get around the whole system and the carriages at the time, there weren't trains. You know, today we have three carriage trains. At the time, they were just single carriage units. You wouldn't even call it a train because it's only one unit. So the capacity was nowhere near what you had today. And because you weren't having your tickets checked, you could get on for a penny and just keep riding. So I don't. So it cost them almost a million pounds to build the thing, and they had one carriage, and they thought that was going to be it. Well, one, one penny. Not just How one, were they ever going to get their money back? Obviously, there's more than just the one carriage. There were you know multiple ones going around the one time. Um, but you know, it's an interesting question because maybe they just didn't think about what the capacity could be. I mean, today you do all the kind of modeling of of how many people you would get at different times a day. I'm sure they did something like that. But they very quickly found out that they did not have enough capacity for the amount of people that were coming in. And even on the day, uh, there were issues that if it happened today, it would, would almost sink a, a, a major kind of transport project like the subway. In the afternoon, one of the carriages broke down. And when I say broke down, there weren't motors in the carriages. They were using the six and a half mile cable. We'll get onto that in a second to pull the carriages around like a cable car. And one of them broke down in between stations, meaning passengers had to get out in the tunnel and, and walk their way to the next station. So that was a bit of a hassle. That would have been a kind of a PR kind of issue. But later in the evening, there was actually a crash with, with two carriages. One got, got stuck near St. Enoch and another came in full 
uh, full speed and hit it. And fortunately, no one was killed. There were some serious injuries, but no one was, was, was killed in the incident because that on the first day of any transport system would be disastrous you know, in any time, much less in 1890s. So what that did was it was open for a day. They had to shut it. They shut the system for another month and they reevaluated uh, the pricing. They reevaluated how they would get people on and off the trains, you know, if they needed conductors and so on. And it reopened in January, January 21st of 1897. And that's when the, the real subway operation started. And what inspired its design? Because it is quite an iconic looking shape. Yes, I mean, we, we're sitting in a recreated 1898 subway carriage. And this very much matched the ones that were there on opening day. So it, it is a Victorian design. It's, it's wooden. You would think it's very old-fashioned. Uh, but at the time, it was quite cutting edge. Um, it had electricity. It had electric lights. It wasn't electrically powered, like the trams would be in a couple years' time. But there were electric lights. It was very quiet because there wasn't any motors it was clean because it was away from uh, the the streets which were clogged with you know coal fumes from all the fires from the from the mills lots of horse manure everywhere from the horse-drawn carriages and these are the things that the subway were sold on that it was it was fast it was cheap it was clean but at the time although we look at it now and think how quaint it looks almost like a little a toy it, yeah, it, it yeah, is yeah. cute but at the time, it was what carriages looked like. It was what trams looked like. So it wasn't, I wouldn't say cutting edge. It wasn't anything um, futuristic for the 1890s, but it was of its time. And that was weird because that kind of look maintained itself all the way through the 1970s. Um, even with some modernization in the 30s, um, the system lasted until the 1970s with the same carriages from the 1890s that had been extended and modernized. But by the time it shut for some modernization in the 70s, it was kind of considered a Victorian toy train. And the, the, the kind of most iconic part, of, I would say, is the, kind of, the actual circle itself. Because people go away on holiday and then they come back and they, they, they realize that actually the Glasgow subway is bloody lovely. Because <laughs> you don't ever get lost. No, you don't. Even if you no. tried. No, you just, if you do, you just wait, you go around the other way, keep going, or you get off and, and come back the other way on, on the other the circuit, the outer, the inner. Um, so yes, so it, it opened as a circle and it's never been extended. Uh, there have been plans from even the early 1900s to extend the subway, to do another circle to the east end, to do some routes to the north and south of the city. Um, that's never come about. I mean, these things still pop up maybe five or 10 years now. And there's, there's various issues why it never happened. One, um, the city is actually and had been actually well served for its public transport. I mean, the trams were the largest outside of London. It was uh, all around the city. They were also very uh, cheap to, to use. There's actually two major um, railway lines across the city. So in terms of public transport, uh, yes, there are areas of the city that were under underused and, and underutilized. Um, um, but it never came to an end. And also, if you want to do it today and you wanted to maintain what the size of the system is, you would never build a subway the way they did back in 1896. I mean, as you'll know, if anybody's been to London or Berlin or, or anywhere, you know, Chicago, New York, they're very small carriages we have in Glasgow. And it's very small tunnels. The gauge was a four-foot gauge rather than the standard gauge, uh, four foot eight and a half. So you would never build one this small again. So if you were to extend the subway today, you would either have to do the same as we have now, or think about doing a completely new system, new tunnels to the west end or to the east end. 
So it is still an iconic circular system. There's been songs written about it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's one of the things that um, still maintains that kind of length to its earlier days that it's never been extended. And if you were to actually dig the, the grounds up, is it actually a circle? It's not quite a circle. I, I thought there was a bit uh, of marketing involved there. <laughs> like like most um, most transport maps, the maps are made to make it easier for the for the user to understand kind of where they're going on the system. Well, the flat earthers think it's just a line. <laughs> um, I mean, even you know the, the famous London map by Beck um, roughly uses geography, roughly. But you have to balance that out with making the easiest look of a map. So it, it's it's roughly a circle, but there are some straight lines. There's some kind of curves in and out that make it. Um, oh, it's it's hard to describe. It's more of like an amoeba kind of look rather than a circle. So what type of railway was it when it first opened? Then when it first opened, although it had electricity inside to power the lights, it was powered by steam engines. It was powered by a cable which ran the full length of the tunnel. So six and a half miles in the middle of the rails was a steel cable. Anyone who's ever been to San Francisco, for example, where they use cable cars, same principle. So the cable keeps running. It's always moving. In the front of the carriage, which was called a grip car uh, originally, there was a gripper. And the gripper was in between the wheels and the front bogey, so the front wheels of the carriage. And the driver at the time, who's called a gripman, would operate an actual wheel himself that would engage the grip, kind of tighten onto that cable, and suddenly away you go. So you'd come into a station, and there was always a slight incline that would help the carriage slow down, and then the gripman would release the cable, so the cable ran free, and in, uh, uh, start the, uh, turn another wheel to have the brake go on, stop the carriage, doors open, passengers in and out, doors shut, when they want to go on again, the gripman would once again take off the brake and engage that grip. So turn the wheel to, uh, to grab onto the cable, and then suddenly off you go. So you needed quite, you think, well, that sounds quite easy. Just turn the wheel. But actually, the gripman needed to be quite skilled because if you turn it quite fast, suddenly you would grab onto that cable, and it was continuously running, and it would pull you really fast and it would shake the whole carriage and, and knock over passengers. But also, that could lead to the cable itself, because of the tension put onto it so quickly, the cable could lift up, and it was held in place in the middle of the rails by what we call sheaves, basically big kind of pulley wheels. That could lift up, and it could lift up even far enough to get to the platform level and hit passengers that might be standing and waiting. So it sounds like a very easy system, but you still had to be a very dedicated and technical driver, gripman at the time. And that system survived all the way up to the 1930s. I love how you say it. it sounds like a very easy system. That sounded really complicated to me. <laughs> but do you know what? It was that of its time, though. No, not really. I mean, there was only three subways. Uh, the London one, it started as a steam uh, powered. So you'd have a, a steam engine going through the tunnels. And that caused its own issues, not just through steam coming up, but how you get rid of the smoke. Um, electricity was around at the time, but I'm not sure if it was seen as um, being able to be able to, to use the whole system. Um, there were the dynamos that powered the lights, like I said, and the lights at the stations, but a, a full-time elect electrical system was maybe not as seen as, I mean, steam-driven cables and engines were a well-used uh, well and well-known technology at the time. So it was a modern thing, it being the third only subway, but it still used very much kind of earlier steam technology, just with the steam being and smoke being pumped out at the powerhouse at Scotland Street rather than in the tunnels like London had been.
So despite the, the kind of PR disaster on day one, pretty successful first year. Yes, it had around 9 million passengers in the first year, um, which, I mean, it, it's, it's just hard to contemplate because when you look at the passenger numbers going up and even to the Second World War and knowing that they either had one carriage or one and a half, like this trailer carriage we're in now, wasn't a full length of a carriage. And even when they extended it, the trains only had two carriages, unlike three today. So it must have been quite packed and quite busy. And also all the stations, and some of them are still like that today, most of them only had what's called an island platform. So the platform right in the middle of the two tracks. So there wasn't much room for passengers to get on and off. Uh, There was dedicated ways, doors that you were supposed to go in and out. And they would be marked on the platform level saying Q here, like a big Q here. And you'd go in through the outer doors, or the indoors, I should say, and leave through the central doors in the subway. So they had a much more strict way of getting on and off because the passenger numbers were so big and the stations were comparatively smaller than they were now. And, and over the years, they then got renovated because the, the one that we were in, you, you mentioned, is wooden, which mm-hmm. to me sounds so so cute and <laughs> kind of re- really cool. Uh, but they're not like that today and they're going to be uh, renovated again total new train system yeah. in, the, in the coming years so yeah. uh, talk to me about how the trains have changed over over time so the, the subway continued as a private company until 1923 and then at that point the glasgow corporation as it was called uh, bought it bought it out very similar to what they did with the trams the trams were originally op- operated by a private company 1872 and by 1894 the corporation bought it out and it became a public transport system when the corporation ran all the electric trams at the time, they were just starting to run uh, internal combustion engine buses in the early 1920s. So the subway added to the kind of the wider um, public uh, ethos of getting people around the city in a, in a fast and cheap way. But it was still looked uh, very much like it is now. So it's still wooden, still powered by the cable, all the way up into the mid-1930s. And that was when the first real modernization took place. In 1935, the the two uh, circles were electrified in March and October of that year. And that also meant that you had to have some modernization of the the stations. There was a a station master hut or cabin that had to have lots of electrical uh, systems that helped monitor. And we were able to isolate various parts. It was a third rail system. Previously, the electric lights, there were two kind of uh, rails that ran on the outside wall of the subway. And because all the stations had island platforms, there were only doors on one side of the carriage because you always entered and exited from one side. So the other side had these these two, um, what was called T-bars, where the electricity was picked up. And that was a lower voltage. But now in the 1930s, the third rail, like most electric um, subway systems do now. And that all had to be monitored. And like I said, for safety reasons, possibly switched off. And some of the stations themselves were modernized to the 1930s. The carriages, um, the first ones that were introduced in 1896, they were all electrified, modernized, repainted, all here in Glasgow at the Govan Depot. The ones that we're in like now, uh, the shorter trailer carriages, they were extended to be kind of the same size as all the other ones. And the way they were um, used or where they were repaired or, or cleaned was there was no points to get the to get the trains out of the system. So it was always underground. There was no above ground subway. If you go to you know, Chicago or London or something, a lot of times the trains, when you get farther out of the city, come out and they're, they're on, out in the daylight. But here in Glasgow, how you got the trains out was when they came under the depot, 
which is just next to the Govan um, station, they would stop and a crane would physically lift them out of the tunnels and take them to the depot. So if there needed to be maintenance, if there had been a crash, even cleaning, a lot of that was done above ground and it needed this crane to get them in and out. Um, seemed like a bit of a, a, a strange way to do it, a bit of a complicated way to do it, but it worked well for the system all the way up to 1977 when the second modernization uh, happened. And that's where we get what we have the subway is today and the carriages that we have today. So in March of, eight, of 1977, the subway was shut for a three-year planned modernization. So it was completely shut. They, in the 1930s, they were able to keep one of the circles going while the other one was being electrified. But so much needed doing on this 80-year-old system in 1970s that it was thought that the whole thing had to be shut. And that saw a complete modernization of all the stations. It saw five of the stations gain uh, two platforms, the new station of Partick, Govan, uh, Copeland Road, which is now called Ibrox, uh, St. Enoch and Buchanan Street had extra platforms put in. And this allowed for uh, easier access to the, to, the, to the trains in these high-use stations. For three years, the, the system was shut. And in early 1980, uh, the system reopened with the carriages that you see on the system today. So what you have now are only the second fleet of trains in 126 years of the system. And as you mentioned, there'll be a new fleet coming in very soon uh, to replace those. And the ones that were, came around in 1980 were a complete different, uh, you know, almost a shock to the system than the ones you had from the original. So we're sitting in this nice wooden, basically wooden carriage as a metal frame, of course. And they were still that kind of way in the 1970s. The ones that were introduced in 1980, the Metro Camel built um, carriages were plastic. They were modern. They had this look of, uh, or like a 60s or 70s modern brutalist kind of. Yes, I love it. There's this orange everywhere. Yes, and they were painted bright orange, which was kind of the color of uh, the Transclyde and kind of the integrated system at the time. And very quickly, either Glaswegians or I suspect more the Glaswegian press uh, nicknamed them the Clockwork Orange. Yeah. So Clockwork Orange, the, the Anthony Burgess book of the 1960s, uh, quite violent and strange. If, I mean, it's quite a good movie and quite good book, um, but it had nothing to do with the actual running of the, the subway around the city. There wasn't any... But everything to do with Glasgow. Well, yes. I don't know if any ultra-violence... <laughs> I'm sure some ultra-violence was had in the Glasgow subway, like in the books. But it got that nickname because of the color and the fact that it was a, it was a, it was a circular system like, and like clockwork. Every several minutes, it would come around and it would take you around the city. So that was the last uh, major modernization. The subway stations themselves went through another one in the kind of for the past five or ten years, but we're still using those Metro Camel uh, carriages until I believe later this year, early next year, when the new fleet's going to be introduced. Well, yeah, there's genuine excitement in the city because they're driverless trains. They are, uh, you know, the, the first kind of new trains since the, the, what was it, 1977 that you said? So 1980s when the new ones were, were yeah. um, introduced, but they were designed in the late 1970s. So. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's genuinely exciting times. But if we go back in time a little bit, if you don't mind, I'm really curious to know whether the subway was ever affected during the World War. Nothing in the First World War. I mean, there were some kind of bombings and so on in the city, but Glasgow didn't get affected by that. But it did in the Second World War. During the Clyde Side Blitz, one uh, Luftwaffe bomber, which was on its way um, to either bomb some of the shipyards or one of the uh, Royal Navy ships that was moored nearby, dropped a bomb uh, 
near Beath Street Bowling Green. Now, that's uh, near where a station was called Merklin Street. Now, that doesn't exist anymore. It's near where Partick is now. But because the, the system was so shallow, as I mentioned, it wasn't a deep system. It was never used for um, air raid precaution, like London was, for example, because it wouldn't have provided you any kind of protection. This bomb exploded basically on top of one of the subway tunnels, and it caused a cave-in. No one was hurt, luckily, but it caused a cave-in, and it meant that the subway was shut for several months, um, but then reopened early in, in 1941 and, and continued all the way through the war. It, it didn't have any of the kind of wartime restrictions. Like, for example, the trams had to have like blackout blinds, and it was quite dark to ride above ground at night or, or in the mornings, but the subway could still operate with its electric lights. So although it's still a circle, it isn't taking you everywhere in this city, it was very well used in the Second War. So it, it just goes to show you that even during the war, and with possible threat of bombings, it was still a very uh, well-used system. So are there still scars all over the war? I mean, I've heard that between Govan and Partick, you, you could actually, if the, the carriage was to stop, you'd be able to tell. If it were to stop and it had some lights out in the tunnels, you could absolutely see. It's very hard to see, but yes, you're you're right. The the, the tunnels built in the 1890s were built with kind of linking uh, iron segments, so they they look like an iron tunnel going through the ground. When they rebuilt the subway after the bombing in 1940, it was built with more of a a brick concrete look. So you'd be going through, you'd be coming up from the tunnel under the Clyde, after you leave Govan, coming up into Partick. And if you could see, you'll see it goes from that kind of circular iron look to more of a, a brick-built stone look for a, a short amount of time. And then you'll also see Glasgow's ghost station, which is Merklin Street. Um, when they modernized the system, uh, some of the stations got new names, but only one new station was built, and that was built at Partick, which was just north of Merklin Street. And they built it there because it was a connection with the above-ground railway, which is the, the railway that goes to Central and to Queen Street today. And also they built a bus station slash stop. So that allowed for interconnected transport in the, well, at least that part of the city. But yes, if it were to stop, if you look really hard, you could probably spot it. It does have a very kind of specific smell, it doesn't does. it? It is does. Is it not just the smell of steam and dust? It's it's like a wet smell. It's yeah. a wet smell. Um, previously, there was, I mean, no one really knew what it was. And I can tell you that when Kelvin Hall opened as a Museum of Transport in 1988, we tried. I mean, I found a, a weird looking machine, like a smell producing machine that was trying to, you know. It's a relatable content. I'm, well, I'm, I know. I'm much the same. Uh, but, you know, you get mixtures. I mean, you do this in museums a lot. You get like tobacco smell in a pub or something or leather smell if you're doing like a, a cobbler shop or something, right? But it never quite worked. And they were wondering if it had the kind of the oil from the, from the cable which was obviously taken out in the 1930s. If it was other parts of, you know, it goes under the, the, the river, if it's something like that. But I think if you try to do that, you're never going to get it quite right, unfortunately. So what's your uh, smell machine doing now? <laughs> um, what, what smells is it producing? Well, um, we've, we've tried other, other things here um, to recreate smells. But is that a real thing, a smell it, machine? It, it was this thing that you would think would be out of like a, some science fiction movie. Right. And it's, it said something like, olfactory machine or something like that. What is this? It wasn't part of the collection because when we have things in the collection in the museums from paintings to subway carriages, they all have a number on them and we have an electronic database we can check. So we knew it wasn't part of that. But it wasn't something that obviously didn't, it never worked at the old museum. We didn't bring it here. And like I said, you'd put it in and you're like, that smells right. And the first visitor to walk in, nah, that doesn't smell <laughs> like the subway. That, that's not, no. Nah. So it's almost better not to try 
I do like the idea that, you, you know, presumably this company that's created the smell machine has made it so people can smell nice things and we're just like, dusty, moist can, stuff. Yeah, can you make it kind of dank? Can you do some of that? <laughs> but it is, it is, it is very iconic to the, um, the Glasgow subway. So we mentioned SPT. When did they take over? Well, SPT or its, its previous kind of guys kind of took over 1973, 1974 was their first year. And it was... It was just kind of continuation from what was called the corporation, it's called the council these days, and running the, the kind of the public transport because the buses and the trams were all public transport. The trams ended in 1962 and the buses were kind of privatized uh, 1970s and 80s. But the subway has always been part of uh, kind of the council uh, run or council um, um, systems for transport around the city. Uh, it's gone through various names, Strathclyde uh, Partnership for Transport these days, SPT, um, and they continue to operate uh, the subway uh, and its depot over Govan. And as we mentioned, very exciting times with the new fleet of trains, only the third fleet ever to be used uh, in the city. Uh, unfortunately, as I mentioned before, you know, constrained to the tunnels and constrained, so they're not going to be big and massive. They, they'll always have kind of some issues with access. Not just the trains, but the, 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 the stations themselves. But it does indicate that SPT and the council and the other funders and the other interested bodies have a vision for the subway going forward. Um, there has been, when there's been ideas of expanding the subway, there's also been ideas of closing the subway over the last uh, 126 years. So it, it is exciting times. What horrible people were saying this? What horrible people were saying this? Or suggesting um, this? Well, the city's changed over the years where people live have changed over the years. Uh, the city going from you know what was one time known as this kind of uh, second city of empire uh, for the heavy industries in the cities, the, the, Glasgow has changed. And because this is a circle that hasn't evolved, did it still serve the kind of communities and the industries that it did in the 1890s? For example, you know the shipyards of Govan and also the shipyards where we're sitting now workers could come and get off at Merkin Street or get off at Govan and go straight to the yard. And that didn't exist from the 1960s. So did it continue? Or would public transport be better served by, for example, buses, that the routes can be changed quite easily? You know, if a new housing estate opens up over there, you can easily put a bus to it. It's more expensive and more difficult to put, for example, trams or a new subway line. Have you used the bus in Glasgow? <laughs> I use the subway and I use the train. It's not that I don't use the bus. It's just that I don't live in Glasgow, so I don't usually have the need to use the buses around the city. So I'll say a no comment on that. Um, <laughs> all the forms of public transport around the city, all the forms, are very important to make sure the city works and plays well. That's a very ambassadorial answer. I'm not even a politician, so. It's a diplomat <laughs> here. Um, so, interesting. So, SPT's uh, been running the Glasgow Subway uh, ever since. Mm -hmm, that's right. And uh, the Glasgow Subway is a much-loved part of the city. And uh, you, you mentioned that in the in the next year or so, we're going to be getting a completely new, revitalised uh, subway system. It's exciting times. And... No, no new carriages have been added since the 1990s. I mean, the, the ones in the 1990s were the same as the ones from the 80s. So it's an exciting time for the, the system, for any kind of transport enthusiasts, and also my museum, the Riverside Museum. Um, they're going to be a, a new future for the subway. You think these are going to last 20 or 30 years. I mean, the ones we have now are on their 43rd year in service. All maintained, all cleaned, all repaired over and governed. 
It's, it's an amazing system over there. The, the team over there have been doing that job for almost half a century to maintain the, the units there now. But going forward, it, as I said, it, it, it means that the, the subway has a future. It is going to be part of the, the future of public transport in Glasgow, no matter what happens, no matter what kind of changes there are in buses in terms of electric or hydrogen buses. If there is some kind of light rail or tram, the subway will be part of that. And the city is ever-changing. People have been moving back into the city center over the past 20 to 30 years. There is still a need to move people about. Um, from a museum point of view, we're very excited because we're sitting in a carriage that we received about 1978, just when the system shut. And we opened up a gallery in the first Museum of Transport. And some of the listeners will remember Albert Drive on the south side, where the tramway is now. That was the first Museum of Transport. And very soon after the subway carriages left the system, we had a subway gallery. So we had two um, subway carriages in that gallery. We actually have three carriages, one of which is the full size, which was one of the last carriages to be used in 1977. Now that's in our storage facility over in Nitz Hill, the museum's resource center. But we have two carriages here at the Riverside Museum. One that we're in now that recreates the 1890s look of the system. Another one that looks at the 1930s and 40s, so the electrification we talked about and the wartime activities and events of the city as well as the subway. But going forward, we're in discussions with SPT to get one of the 1980 carriages, so the Metro Chemical Clockwork Orange carriages, added to the collection, as well as maybe some other kind of peripheral items. We've, we've had very good connections with SPT over the years in terms of uniform, tickets, uh, items from stations, and that's what we do here. And then that's part of my role is to create new displays around what we have in the, the collection already, but also add things to the collection that in 10, 20, 30, 40 years, 100 years, um, that visitors will enjoy learning about the history of the city and the history of the subway. Absolutely. And, you know, the trains have been in use for such a long time that people will want to kind of see them again. They, they won't want to just forget about them. Yeah. And it's, it's because they're never outside... Uh, I'm, I'm out in the, the broad daylight, you only see them at a platform. So we'll be able to show, and this is a bit of a technical getting into the weeds here, but you'll be able to see the bogies underneath. You'll see a bit more of the whole carriage and we'll be able to tell visitors a little bit more about uh, its operation and the people that maintain it and the new carriages and the new fleet coming in. And what is it you specifically mean by bogies? Bogies are not the ones you find up your nose. They are, the wheels of carriages or, or locomotives are fixed onto bogies. They're the things that kind of turn back and forth that allow a carriage or train to move around corners. So if the wheels were just fixed, it'd be hard for a carriage to take tighter corners. So a bogie is the thing that kind of moves, swivels back right. left and right or in a, in, a, in a circular form fashion. I'm sure many people out there are listening saying, that's not the right way to describe it, but I'm going to do it as best I can. But um, so the, these carriages have two bogies and each bogie has four wheels. So it allows them to take corners better. John, it's been really, really interesting to chat to you and learn about the history of the Glasgow subway. Thanks, Thank Fred. you very Thank much. Thank you very much. What a guy and incredible knowledge about the subway. John, thank you again. If you haven't been, take a trip to the Riverside Museum. It's well worth a visit. In the next episode, I'll be chatting with past subway worker who holds a special record and a commuter from Cowcaddens to hear their experiences and find out why the subway is so special to them. For more info, check out spt.co.uk and search Glasgow Subway on the socials. I'll see you next time.